Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and welcome to a special holiday edition of Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to talk this week with our panel about four defining moments of 2017. We're going to do a little year-in-review thing for you. Uh... Each person on the panel picked a political moment this year that they thought defined 2017 in one way or another. Tim Alberta picked Senator John McCain's dramatic thumbs down on health care. I will not vote for this bill as it is today. It's a shell of a bill right now. We all know that. Eliana Johnson picked a pair of key foreign policy decisions by President Donald Trump decertifying the Iran deal and announcing the move of the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. I've judged this course of action to be in the best interests of the United States of America and the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Nancy Cook picked a key personnel change at the White House, with retired General John Kelly taking over as chief of staff. Reince was a good man. General Kelly has been a star done an incredible job thus far, respected by everybody, a great, great American. And I picked the first congressional special election of 2017 way back in April, a race in Kansas that in a lot of ways foreshadowed what we saw in politics the rest of the year. For far too long, Washington hasn't worked for us, and we need to make sure that changes. Tonight is a symbol of that. A couple quick notes before we jump in. Remember, you can email us your questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. One other programming note before we get started. This is going to be my last podcast for a little while. I'm going to be out for a few months taking care of uh, my new baby boy at home. So Tim and Charlie and a few other uh, Nerdcast regulars are going to be taking over hosting duties for a little while. I will be back in the spring, uh, but uh, for the moment, uh, they are going to be uh, leading the charge as the Nerdcast leaps into 2018. All right, here's who we have with us for this special holiday episode. We have White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. We have White House reporter Eliana Johnson. Hello. Hello. And we have national political reporter Tim Alberta of Politico Magazine gracing us with his presence. <laughs> Hello, Tim. <laughs> Hello. What a welcome. <laughs> All right. And well, let's let's just dive right in with you, Tim. Your most important moment of 2017, you picked John McCain's dramatic thumbs down on the healthcare vote uh, in the middle of the night uh, over the summer. For so many reasons, I think the McCain thumbs down is this indelible image, this lasting memory that we will all have. For, for, if you consider the context of this, of course, John McCain is the party's 2008 presidential nominee. 
he loses to Barack Obama. And Barack Obama's signature domestic legislative accomplishment as president is the Affordable Care Act. And here is John McCain eight years later in the position to cast the deciding vote to deal a death blow to the Affordable Care Act and to unravel his former rival's legacy on the issue of health care. And yet, John McCain's feud with that former president is paling in comparison to his feud with the current president, who McCain, in so many words, has called unstable and unfit for office. And McCain, because of not only his uh, disdain for President Donald Trump, but because of his uh, unapproval of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's handling of the entire health care process, very few hearings, no real debate, no amendments allowed to the legislation itself. McCain decides in that moment that he is going to not only shoot down this particular bill, but really he's going to put a nail in the coffin on the GOP's efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. They promise that has been around basically, you know, the previous, uh, not the entirety of the Obama presidency. Four elections but, running. But, but four elections running. And, and in that moment, McCain also, the even broader, more existential context is McCain is battling a brain tumor. And it's known that this could be one of his last moments, one of his last uh, significant votes that he's going to take as a United States senator. And in that moment, he sides with, in his description, country over party and, and process over partisanship. And it was just really a, a striking moment uh, for anybody who witnessed it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, in so doing, uh, McCain put heaped even more pressure on the rest of his party to pass tax reform, which they finished up this week, right? The 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 fact that he stood in the way of uh, the party keeping that promise on health care made it all the more imperative that they uh, move this, this tax bill that they just finished up this week to try and close out 2017 with something to show for it. Right, Nancy? Yeah, that's absolutely right. They were getting a huge pressure from donors who had threatened to sort of pull funding if uh, Republicans couldn't get something done and they didn't have some sort of win to show in 2018. Um, I was not up in the middle of the night, but I do not believe McCain voted for the tax bill. He is out of Washington, right? He is back home in Arizona right now right. Uh, recovering from chemotherapy. Right. So that makes it, Tim's point even bigger is that this is, you know, the health care vote was sort of the last major bill that uh, McCain voted for, and he voted against it and, and sat this one out given his health. And so, yeah, it was a huge moment because it really set the tone and the trajectory for this fall. I don't think it was a huge moment. I'm dissenting. Ooh. Okay, right. tell us why. Uh, well, if Ted Kennedy is remembered for having passed or having cast the historic vote to with his party to pass landmark legislation, McCain will have cast you know, the dissenting vote to prevent his party from passing, you know, what would have been landmark legislation. I just think McCain basically hates any uh, president who's not him, and he is sour grapes. And uh, that none of his explanations for why he voted against this bill ever amount er, ever, ever made all that much sense. So um, 
I do think that if if the GOP had not succeeded in passing any, any major legislation, it would have ended up being a more significant moment. But I do think in the last three months of this year, they ended up getting something done. So I'm not sure how memorable that last vote. Like I, I'm not sure as a legacy issue, it's it's going to end up being like a big part of McCain's legacy. Well, I think if you review, defend yourself, Tim. If you review. <laughs> The 2010 election, the 2012 election, 2014, 2016 elections, the common promise from Republicans at the federal level, House, Senate, and of course presidential campaigns in 2012 and 2016 was first and foremost to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, to repeal and replace. This was a promise seven years in the making. And for McCain, who again had not just been a rank-and-file member of the party, but had been the party's nominee in 2008, for him to cast that deciding vote, I think, stands out for the reasons uh, enumerated earlier. I would also add to your point about it not making sense, Eliana, I think it does make sense from a procedural standpoint. McCain has been in the Senate, a stickler for regular order. He believes that any bills that come to the floor for a vote should be thoroughly debated, that there should be an open amendment process, that there should be a considerable amount of time spent on that legislation and committee. And that bill that he voted against was quite literally drafted in the dead of night and amended at the last second on the floor in in you know a matter of uh, less than an hour before the bill actually came up for a vote. So from McCain's perspective, I think that he was intellectually consistent in voting against the bill. I rest my case. <laughs> All right. Tim rests. Let's move on to the, n- the next one. Eliana, you're... Don't worry, I'll blow up everybody's, everybody's <laughs> proposal. Eliana, the moment you picked um, has to do with kind of President Trump. Uh, it, you know, in, in the case that Tim picked, uh, obviously, a lot of what President Trump has promised on the campaign trail wanted to do this year. Congress has... Uh, stood in the way for one reason or another, uh, whether it's the filibuster or, um, you know, the the fact that Republicans don't have the most commanding Senate majority or what have you. But there's still a lot that he has control over. And that's that's what led to your your pick for kind of the most uh, uh, biggest moments of the year. Kind of. Um, so I, I feel like the first six months of this year were journalists and political analysts and onlookers were caught up in a debate over who has the most sway in the Trump White House. It was Steve Bannon versus the establishment or Bannon versus Priebus. And people acted like Trump's brain essentially was this playing field between um, two different teams and whoever won out on whatever particular debate was happening, um, whether it was on health care or on a foreign policy issue, that was what the president ended up doing. And nobody gave much credit to the fact that or to the idea that the president has sharp views on a number of policy issues. And regardless of what Steve Bannon says on X or Jared Kushner says on Y, he's going to do what he uh, what he wants to do on a number of discrete issues that he has strong views on. Um, they, the Paris Climate Accords was a good example, but that wasn't the moment I picked. So I think that the decertification of the Iran deal and his decision to move uh, the American embassy in Jerusalem kind of capture that because they're both instances when Trump pushed back on the advice of almost all of his senior foreign policy advisors. He had a few couple of people, Nikki Haley, um, 
most notably who agreed with him, but he did push back on Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, who really didn't want him to do these things. But I think that his uh, his gut instincts um, prevailed in both instances, and they do speak to the fact that um, Trump is the person who's in control of what happens in the White House, and he doesn't do things because he was pressed to do them by Steve Bannon or because Jared Kushner won X or Y fight. He does them because ultimately um, he's the decision maker in the White House. Come at me, people. That's, that's a pretty compelling argument. I mean, you know, Nancy, does that comport with what you see covering the White House? I mean, I think it's a compelling argument. I would say, like, on policy areas, I feel like he has specific viewpoints on certain things and not everything. That's that's a good point. Um, and so I, I don't think it would apply to, like, every decision uh, that has been made. And sometimes I feel like he's not going with specific uh, ideology. He's just reacting to things. So, like, for instance, with the tax bill, like, I think that he had a few specific things that he wanted, but he basically outsourced the entire writing of it to Congress and the congressional leaders. Um, you know, he just wanted a bill and he wanted a low corporate rate and he got those things. Um, and, you know, on other policy things like the transgender ban, I talked about this on another podcast earlier this week. You know, I don't know if he really, like, believes that transgender people shouldn't serve in the military. I don't know if he believes in that policy, but he was doing it because he was reacting to lawyers trying to to tell him what to do, and he didn't like that. And so I think that, uh, you know, sometimes the way that he makes policy isn't because of deeply held beliefs. It's because he is reacting to not wanting to be put in a box. Yeah, I think both arguments are true. Um, another case in point uh, to support Eliana's argument would be Trump's approach to the Kurds and, uh, and, and the relationship, uh, the rather rocky relationship between the, the feeble Iraqi state and neighboring Turkey. And Trump has essentially uh, decided, made it clear that he will be going against the advice of every single member of his national security apparatus, all of whom want to see the United States arm the Kurds, back the Kurds, uh, that he will instead be allying himself with Turkey and President Erdogan. Uh, that is an example. Uh, you talk to folks in the in the foreign policy, national security realm in D.C., and they are sort of universally shocked by what they're seeing out of Trump. And I think not just because uh, he is bucking some strong, assertive, conservative Republican voices uh, in his administration on Capitol Hill, but because he's doing so uh, out of out of what seems to be a, a deeply held belief that he's right and they're wrong. And I think the assumption was uh, very, you know, pretty widely held on January 19th of this year that Donald Trump was a blank slate in almost all of these areas. And that I think in many cases, surprisingly, has proven not to be the case. That's a really good point. So uh, El- Eliana, on the, there are still a wide number of issues, though, on which he, a- at least as far as we know, either doesn't care or hasn't formed an opinion yet, right? But there, there's a, there's a I think set. I the, the issues on which he doesn't care or hasn't formed an opinion have to do with the fine details of domestic legislation, like the fine details of a health care bill he's not going to get involved in and start scrabbling you know, start scrapping with House Republicans, find details of a tax bill he's not going to get involved in and fight with anybody over. Uh, He's going to be a stickler on the top line issues. The corporate tax rate was one. Um, On on healthcare, I think he pretty much didn't care about anything except for passing a bill. Um, I I joked at the time that the bill could have 
a bill could have expanded Obamacare and he would have signed it. I really don't think he cared about any of the details in that bill except for claiming that I mean, he, he likes ceremony, but there are discrete issues where he really is the decision maker. I think on Paris climate, on Iran decertification, the moving of the Jerusalem embassy, um, a number of issues like that. Uh, it, it is Trump driving this against the advice of many, many people in the White House, and he's putting his mark on on the presidency. Do you think it would be fair to say, you cover this more than I do, do you think it would be fair to say that he's like more engaged on foreign policy than domestic policy? I'm not sure. Uh, I have to think about that a little more. But It sounds like what you're saying, Eliana, is to <laughs> quote Donald Trump himself, I'm no puppet, you're the puppet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's pithy. That's a much pithier way of saying saying what I was saying. Just saved you four minutes. Yeah, <laughs> Nancy, the moment that that you picked as kind of the the a memorable moment, a defining moment of 2017, actually dovetails with this uh, conversation that we're having quite nicely. So the moment I picked was uh, when Reince Priebus was fired and General Kelly came in as the chief of staff. And I think that there was this sense in Washington and in newsrooms, um, and I was guilty of writing some of these stories myself, that General Kelly was going to like bring all this order to the White House and somehow make Trump like a much more disciplined person um, and, and sort of would control him and his instincts. And I think that that has proven to be a little bit faulty, that whole narrative. I certainly think that with some of the factions gone and some of, uh, you know, with Steve Bannon out of the White House, although Trump still talks to him, and some of sort of the, the fringier folks who came in uh, originally, like Omarosa's gone, Seb Gorka's gone. You know, you have like a, fewer characters in the White House, and General Kelly has certainly done that. And I think there's a better process of getting information to Trump, although Trump does still circumvent that. But I think that kind of what we've seen is this whole narrative of like, there's going to be this savior who comes in and controls Trump, be it like Ivanka and Jared or General Kelly or someone new on the staff. That's just so sort of faulty. And I think that what we've learned in the past year is that Trump is his own political strategist. He's his own best communications director. He seems to prefer that, uh, prefer sort of taking those lead roles. And it just follows with what Eliana says. I, I think that we all, uh, a lot of us had assumptions that because he didn't have deep experience in politics that he would surround himself with all these people that would help prop him up or help him do things. And I think that that hasn't necessarily been the case. And while General Kelly has had uh, influence in some ways, and he and Trump have a good relationship, there are limits to any advisor's influence. And that's how I think that we're ending the year. And that's something I'm going to watch going into 2018. It seems like the, the to the extent that Kelly has influence over Trump, it's as, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, it's as a sounding board that he respects, uh, but also as that, you know, one of the things that the president does is choose the personnel around them and going back into Trump's businesses for years, we knew that he, he kind of fostered these backbiting cultures. And Kelly, like you said, has kind of cleaned some of that out of the White House. But he, Trump himself is you know, has, has, is still creates his own drama. Yeah. And there's still backbiting in the white house. Like I don't want to paint it as some big, like kumbaya, you know, everybody's going around and having a great time together. 
vibe. It's just better kept from reporters. I think it's good be- job, John Kelly. <laughs> I Damn you! I think it's be- slightly better kept from reporters, and I also think maybe the disagreements are like over more professional things. It's not as much knifing over personal things, uh, which is sort of how it's supposed to be usually in a White House. Uh, yeah, so I'll just be curious to see, like, you know, how long does Kelly last? Does he last through all of 2018? And, you know, what are ways in which we see Trump sort of continuing to exert himself, particularly heading into the midterms, like as his own political strategist um, and as his own best communicator versus sort of the staff and personnel in the White House? And as the tweeter in chief. Well, I, yeah. And to that point, I was just going to say, I think a lot of reporters in town were lulled into this false sense of change in those first 36 hours or so that Kelly was on the job. And then we... First 36 hours, I would say like first five weeks. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I, I think that there was a moment uh, in, the, in that first week when Kelly had taken over where we all saw a lot of those same stories written and, and we all had good reason to believe that, look, Reince Priebus is a nice man, but Reince Priebus is not confrontational. He is, he's not really, because of his background in, in fundraising and doing some legal work uh, before getting into party politics, this is not somebody who is any kind of a party boss in the traditional sense. So he, so he was not really cut out to be a chief of staff to somebody like Donald Trump. And when Kelly comes in, we see such a stylistic change that I think a lot of us had reason to believe that this would look different. But in that first week, I think that that notion ran hard into the reality that Donald Trump can only be controlled as long as somebody changes the password to his smartphone and keeps him off Twitter. Because as soon as he's on Twitter, all of the discipline being imposed from a new chief of staff means very little when he is able to get on Twitter at 6 a.m. and start sending incendiary and polarizing uh, messages out, out to the world, broadcasting them to the world. And I think that that, that became suddenly the, the caveat on the John Kelly story was how, you know, sure, you can, you can restructure and reorganize and, and impose discipline on this administration uh, as far as the, the logistics and the infrastructure is concerned, but how much can you control somebody who rhetorically has no history of controlling himself? Well, I also feel like Kelly has also made it clear that he doesn't view his job to control Trump or to control Trump t- Trump's tweets. And we've seen chief of staff, the chief of staff. Yeah, he right. he does not, not view <laughs> right. He does not view that as part of his job, and he's made that really clear, like in the last you know few months, that he thinks his job is to control the White House staff and sort of the policy process from that White House staff uh, and the decision making process, but that he does not even pretend or want to have control over Trump himself. Who would? <laughs> I well, mean that, Im- that seems you're setting yourself up to <laughs> It's an impossible for- it's an impossible job description. And I think even, you know, relating back to Eliana's point even a minute ago, as we've seen not just controlling Trump, but even swaying Trump. I mean there was remember how right. much was written at the beginning of the year about Ivanka Trump was going oh to have enormous influence over those the stories. administration. RIP all those oh stories. Oh my gosh, right. And I think that's been one of the the, That's the, a genre that we can just bury. That is yeah. a genre that is dead and buried. And really, like w- one of the central narratives when he was coming in was that this was a family operation, Moderating and that there are these people who could yeah. moderate him, and 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 that proved to not be the case. And so I think Kelly is is a smart enough guy as a military tactician to probably have seen where these other people fell He's short. He's not going to set unattainable goals. Yeah, exactly. So what what should we? Why did nobody choose a sexual harassment moment? 
Yeah, I think we're still figuring that out. That could be the the defining story of 2018. Here, here's what I picked for 2017. I picked the first congressional special election of the year. It was all the way back in April. It was uh, the race in Kansas to replace Mike Pompeo, who became uh, Donald Trump's CIA director uh, and left that seat vacant. And it just uh, foreshadowed, despite the Republican uh, win holding that seat, it foreshadowed this tumultuous year of special elections uh, that really kind of, I think, uh, you know, convinced Democrats that their party wasn't completely dead after the the shock of losing the presidential race in 2016. And, um, you know, this was a district in Kansas that Trump won with 60 percent of the vote in November 2016. And all of a sudden, less than six months later, we're a week before that special election and Republican groups are starting to pour money into that race. And that was the first indication that a lot of people in D.C. Uh, had a really concrete indication of how uh, hard the political environment had swung against the Republican Party based in Trump's early days in office as his approval rating was going down, as he didn't really have Hillary Clinton as a foil anymore uh, to set himself up against uh, like he did in the 2016 elections. And we just saw this kind of run through all of 2017. We saw it uh, move to Georgia, where there was this enormous, the most expensive house race of all time, uh, turned into this big rolling special election there in Montana, and obviously culminating in Alabama uh, this past, uh, this last couple weeks with Democrats winning the Senate seat there that was um, left open by Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general. So I that that's just been kind of this, this political story that's been underpinning the entire year and and has it feels like i've been covering one special election or another for like pretty much every every week for for all of 2017 which was not how i was expecting it to go at the the beginning of the year and republicans i think throughout all of those different races were saying some variation of the same thing which is boy it would be a lot easier for us to play some offense and not just play defense if we could put points on the board, if we had something to show for the fact that we control both chambers of Congress and the White House. And, and finally, here we are at the end of the year with the Republicans celebrating the passage of tax reform. But even that bill is historically unpopular. So the idea that suddenly they've, they've put this major legislative win on the board, the idea that that's going to cure what ails the party, that's, that's a very much a dubious proposition and an open question heading into 2018. Because there's a real sense, I think you talk to some Republicans, they think the tax bill could wind up hurting them at the polls more than helping them. Oh, yeah. I think I talked to Republican lobbyists and tax experts. One called this like a big shit sandwich, a turd of a bill. Are we allowed to say shit? I sure, don't know. why not? But I mean, there there's like a feeling among lobbyists and tax people, yeah, that they had to get this done for 2018, but that policy-wise, it's like kind of a dog of a bill and there's going to be all these corrections and problems. I mean, these are Republicans that I'm talking to who are sort of rolling their eyes at this. Um The other thing that I'm watching just in terms of 2018 that I'm sort of curious about, which Eliana brought up earlier, is just this Me Too moment. And I feel like we've just seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of, uh, you know, people on the Hill who've had to resign and lose have lost their Senate and House seats as a result of that. And I'll be really curious. I I feel like if we see more and more allegations come out, I'll be curious to see how that reshapes the 2018 map, Um, because you could have... I mean, I just, you don't know what's going to come to light. I'm Absolutely. Not, I'm not saying this because I have any secret knowledge, but it's something that I'm watching. Yeah. I mean, well, we haven't seen the last special elections of this Congress. First of all, there are people 
it seems like new people are resigning every week. Uh, we've got th- this has kind of gotten, you know, it came before the the floodgates really opened. But the fact that there's this, this special election coming up in Pennsylvania in March to replace Tim Murphy, who uh, resigned in a sex scandal, and uh, there were uh, reports afterwards in Politico and elsewhere of just a horrible, horrible uh, workplace environment in his in his office and kind of preceding his resignation. There are going to be more of these special elections under different circumstances in in 2018, but that that's kind of a trend that's going to continue. And weren't they already talking? Democrats were already talking about making 2018 the year of the woman, with lots and lots of women recruits across the country. Yeah. And that was before all of the hashtag Me Too stuff started, right? So now it's it's almost feeling like it could be the year of the woman on steroids, that you could have enormous turnout, especially among young women who have typically not been a, a high propensity voters in midterm election cycles. Well, didn't we see that in Virginia in the special Absolutely. election? Yeah. I mean, wasn't that election kind of won and lost based on suburban female voters? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to, to, to a great extent. Um, you know, one actually, just thinking through the special elections here, just one thing that, that jumps out at me also, and this is not not to get on too far a tangent, but Alabama coming up because Jeff Sessions became the attorney general. I mean, who would have thought two years ago or a year, year and a half ago when Jeff Sessions became the first uh, senator to endorse Donald Trump that Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general would open just this floodgate of problems for the Republican Party, including him recusing himself from the Russian investigation. Well, every special election turned out to be basically a disaster for Republicans. Like, even in totally safe seats, they got the domestic assaulter in, well, not domestic, just regular assaulter, uh, Gianforte in Montana, (laughs) and a Democrat from Alabama, and super close race in Tom Price's seat in Georgia that they poured a ton of money into. So, yeah, Trump needs to stop nominating people to his cabinet who are members of Congress. (laughs) Whoa. And, uh, and, yeah, and just, you know, we saw at the state... Uh, Lesson learned. Yeah, we saw. Oh, well, we'll see. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there might we, be, the, I, we think there are going to be some cabinet openings yeah. in the 2018. So we'll see. Three quarters at the state legislative level and the congressional level. Three quarters of those special elections in 2017 featured uh, Democrats who outperformed the kind of presidential result baseline in that district. And so that kind of sets up the political environment for where we are heading into the new year and the regularly scheduled uh, midterms and all that comes with those. I think that about does it for Merry 2017. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's, yeah. Merry Christmas, Scott. You well, have that nice this, green sweater. We on. can this say is, that now. Isn't it so oh great, my, everyone? You yes. guys realize this is airing after Christmas, right? Oh, it is? Well, I just want to soak in how wonderful it is to be able to say those words again. <laughs> well, As a I, Jew, it just feels so liberating. <laughs> <laughs> so Happy New Year, then, if it's yeah. going to air after. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great Christmas. And I hope, uh, I hope you guys... Uh, I, I hope you guys enjoy and, and keep the podcast flame burning while I'm out for a few weeks looking after uh, my newborn. I, I appreciate... Uh, He's t- no longer a newborn, uh, Well, I don't know. When it's did, like going when, to college when now. When did I stop being a newborn? What will Nerdcast be without the nerd? Well, Nerdcast will involve a lot more Tim Alberta, for one thing. So, <laughs> oh, boy. Buckle <laughs> up, ladies and so gentlemen. Good. The podcast is going to become three hours. Let's hope not. All right. Tim, thank you very much for being here this week. My pleasure, Scotty. Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. Eliana, thank you as always. I'm waving. <laughs>
And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Also, a big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher, Zach Montalaro. Nerdcast will be back next week. I'll be back a few months after that, but please keep listening as Tim and Charlie and a, uh, some other folks uh, help keep Nerdcast going in the next few months. I'll be listening. I hope you keep listening, too. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>